Nate's come out with another awesome tool for the swimming community. It's called Swim Nerd Live, and it allows the data and times from your actual scoreboard to be broadcast and viewed in real time on any smart TV, phone, or other device. It has all the information you're looking for, event, heat, lane, name of swimmer, times and places. One click on any device and they're watching you swim live in real time. Go to swimpractice.com to learn more. Okay, Jeremy Lynn, welcome to the podcast, man. How you doing? Doing great. How about you, Brett? I'm great, man. It's good to see you again. Absolutely. Now, where are you coming from? Uh, so we're I'm in Washington D.C., Northern Virginia, out some west of town, and uh, and I've been uh, coaching with Nation's Capital Swim Club for the last 15 years. And uh, for those that don't know much about our club, uh, we have 2,000 kids on the club, and it spans the whole greater D.C. area. Um, so we have everything from Germantown, Maryland, all the way out to where I'm at in uh, outside of Manassas. I'm in Warrington, Virginia, so it's west of D.C. And uh, we have 11 different sites around the, around the town. And uh, I run what is called West NCAP West. So I'm the head coach of that. We run out of three different pools, 280 kids, uh, 14 coaches on staff. So it's like a team of its own inside that team. So there's a lot of work and a lot of fun to be had doing it. Yeah, man, it's a true powerhouse. But um, listen, everybody I speak to about you who have been coached by you or know you just love you, man. You do a great job. Like you, your athletes seem to really buy into what you're doing. And you just seem to be um, a caring, passionate coach. And I think that transcends, you know, that, that they, they connect to that. So do you notice that about yourself? Sure. Hey, Brett, now you were an elite athlete as well. Um, you know, when I, when I was retiring from the sport of the swimming as an athlete and moving forward with my life, I wanted to find some real meaning in, mm. in what the, the opportunity that I had to be a part of this sport was. Mm. And, uh, and I kind of came up with the fact that, you know, all the values that I learned that helped me carry myself in, in the way I carry myself through life. Um, you know, everything from, you know, being honest with yourself about 100% effort to being on time, you know, so I yeah. came up with this list of, uh, you know, really important values that, that the sport of swimming gave to me or the experiences through the sport of swimming gave to me. And I kind of made them the cornerstone of, of our program. I was really lucky when, when, when I joined Nation's Capital Swim Club, which was previously Carl Burke at the time, um, I got to start this site. So I got to start it from ground zero mm. and we made that value system, the cornerstone of, of everything we do from how the, the staff relates with the parents to how the, the kids interact with the challenges on a day-to-day -day basis inside and outside of the pool. It became the most important thing. And I think when you help foster uh, kids making great choices and being good people, uh, the sport of swimming just becomes a lot of fun. And, and, and we do, you know, that's where my knowledge base lies for life. Kind of how mm. I teach my lessons for life is in the sport of swimming. So, you know, teaching the whole person is a really big deal to us. And what we find is, you know, a happy, healthy person is going to compete at a high level. Yeah. So uh, It's really been a lot of fun. Uh, you know, my goal has always been, how can I impact positively the most amount of people possible? And that's how I found myself swim coaching, because I could do positive things in other in other walks of life. But it, it just seemed to be where my my knowledge base lied the most, where I could really give back the most. So that's really why I started with the sport of swimming on the, on the other end of of it, not being an athlete, but being a coach. And believe it or not, this year marks the year that I've been a coach longer than I was a swimmer. So oh, wow. Now I'm a, a coach, a life coach and not a life swimmer. So it's pretty cool. There you go. That's awesome, man. I love that. And I love the fact that you said you came up with a list. Uh, one of the best recommendations I got from the time that I was leaving swimming uh, as an athlete to, to going into coaching was I got some advice to say, hey, come up with some lists, like you said, to to what do, what do you believe in? What, what do you value? What do you 
um, what do you know works? What do you think doesn't work? What, what are things, what are sets that you, you love that, that, um, you know, just the whole aspect of like evaluating your career as an athlete and then putting that into what type of coach you want to be. And, uh, that was some great advice that I got was coming up with these lists. And that's, that's the same advice that I give young coaches these days. They're always asking me for advice. I'm like, come up with your list, you know, like what, what do you stand for? What do you believe in? How do you want to, you know, what type of practices do you want to write? How do you want to write practices? All that is a, a matter of just, um, introspection and, and kind of figuring it out for yourself. There's no manual that you can hand somebody and say, here, just do this. And you're going to be a great coach. It's got to come from within. Right. Yeah. And I feel like you'll also have to have the willingness to, to allow yourself to evolve, especially for a young coach. Um, you know, I remember when I started coaching, I went around because because of when I was a swimmer, I knew all the greatest coaches in the world. So I went around to all mm -hmm. of them. And I said, what I got to do to be the greatest coach. In the world. Mm -hmm. They're like, grow up, get married, have kids, you know, like mm -hmm. yeah. take some time, young man. And, and I, instead of, you know, I, I knew I had the knowledge base. Mm -hmm. And, but what I had to do was, was learn through the process and, and be willing to be pliable to, uh, to the, the changes that are going to happen on a year to year basis, based on the athletes that are going to be a part of the program or based on the challenges that, you know, a uh, worldwide pandemic provides you, mm -hmm. whatever it is, you have to be pliable to that and, and willing to, you know, kind of, you know, bend your stiff way. This is the way it has to be. And I think that that's a really important thing to, to understand. And something that I've, grown into in the past probably 10 years is you know I told my 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 swimmers when I was a younger coach it must be this way you have mm -hmm. to do this way or you're not going to be successful mm -hmm. and I've learned to instead of tell them how to what they have to do to empower them to make choices and good choices mm -hmm. for themselves so you know educate them on what their choices might mean as mm -hmm. far as you know what, what comes of that choice, uh, but allow them to make their own choices. And I think you know, it goes hand in hand with having that great value system. If they're good people and they're making good choices for themselves like that, when you, when you empower them to make those choices, then when they move forward into a college program or into a national team or whatever it is, they can, they, they're empowered with that, that ability to make great choices for themselves and do the right thing. I love it, man. Let's reflect on Jeremy Lin, the athlete for a second, then before we dig into a little bit more coaching. So how did you know you were a breaststroker? I didn't. Um, I wasn't legal in breaststroke. So I was 14. <laughs> what were you doing? It was one of my favorite, one of my favorite stories to tell uh, kids is, you know, you know, don't, don't pigeonhole yourself into I'm this, yep. you know, be open to anything and and certainly even our our best athletes we're asking them to do new stuff and try new things because it's fun to learn and grow and progress mm -hmm. um so we don't want people to just kind of pigeonhole or stay stagnant in a certain thing for me breaststroke became a choice because my older brother five years older than me was a breaststroker mm -hmm. was fairly elite breaststroker he had headed out to uva uh, to swim for Mark Bernardino and, mm. uh, and he's an NCAA qualifier. Uh, you know, I wanted to be like my big brother. Mm -hmm. So he did breaststroke. I just, I just decided, and it was a lot like, and I correlated to, you know, anything you want to do. I want, I didn't set my goal. I wanted to be an Olympic breaststroker. Mm -hmm. My goal is I want to do breaststroke legally to start. Yeah. You know? it just happened to be the kind of work ethic that I had and the, the uh, ability to set goals as I move forward and, and, and kind of think of like goals as you were climbing a ladder, you know, yeah. each day, I just wanted to grab a rung of that ladder. And the first day just so happened, you better get legal in the stroke. Yeah. yeah. So, and each day I just tried to get that day's goal and get a little better and a little better. So focusing on being in the moment and, and trying to achieve what your goal is right now, such a big deal to do anything. So breaststroke became something that I really wanted to do and apply my goal setting, uh, you know, uh, formula for uh, when I was about 14. And uh, 
And by the time I was 16, I was the fastest guy in the state. And then by the time I was 18, I was the fastest high schooler in the country. You know, so it just kind of progressed on a, on a uh, you know, on that kind of basis. Being competitive was always there. Yeah. And that that's something, you know, I'm, I, love, I was very competitive in freestyle and backstroke. Uh, I was a good IMer, but I would get DQ'd because I couldn't do breaststroke legally. <laughs> Uh, Where, where'd you grow up? I'm from Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Okay. And I'd swam for a small team in Harrisburg, PA. It was the Harrisburg Eshore YMCA. Mm. When I started, it was the Harrisburg Swim Club. It was out of an inner city middle school, uh, you know, real small team. Uh, coach Ed Frazier was our coach. And it evolved into the Harrisburg Eshore Y and then, and then later into Central Pennsylvania Aquatic Club. It no longer exists. Uh, Four, three Olympians came from there, uh, all breaststrokers. So uh, oh, Anita, wow. Anita Nall originally swam for us uh, mm-hmm. until she was uh, uh, 12 years old when her family moved to Baltimore and they started swimming with NBAC. Mm-hmm. Um, and she made the games when she was 16. And then uh, and then came me uh, four years later. So she was 92. I went in 96. And then four years later, uh, somebody that I trained with, Christy Kowal, which, mm. who I, you know, uh, yep. also made the team. So, um, and they say, you know, something in the water in central Pennsylvania, you got Brendan Hansen that comes from there, you know, just, uh, Michael Normand, you got always Mm. some great breaststroke history from central Pennsylvania. Some studs. I love it. So why didn't you end up following your brother to UVA? Well, how'd you end up at Tennessee? Um, so, um, when I went to the university of Tennessee, uh, coach John Tremblay was the, the head coach. And when I was a little kid, we always went to Mercersburg Academy where John Tremblay was the head coach when I was a little kid. Right. So I knew him from the swim camps, they, swim camps that he ran there, uh, which were at the time, probably one of the most prolific swim camps in the country. So mm-hmm. he's really well known for that. And, and I kind of got to know him a little bit and my coach got to know him real well. Um, so when it came time to choose where I was going to you know, be a collegiate swimmer. Uh, I had a, a nice list of primarily ACC and SEC schools, uh, but uh, the connection that I had with Coach Tremblay and the and the connection to University of Tennessee because of that just just seemed to be a great fit. Um, so, and, and interestingly, you know, uh, I have a great message for for those student athletes that aspire to be uh, college swimmers. Um, you know, not neglecting the academic side of what you do and making swimming the most important thing is such a big deal. Um, when I was a junior in high school, I was carrying a 1.1 GPA, mm. not because I wasn't capable, yeah. because I just didn't find the importance in it. I didn't really like the process of it. Um, but it kind of was like imagine if you're going to swim practice every day brett and you're not really trying your hardest yeah you're really giving your heart to it you're not committed to the 100 percent effort it isn't very fun mm-hmm. you don't really have a reason to be there your goals aren't clear so it it it's not that fun of a process. And then you start skipping practices and all of a sudden it's not something you're doing on a regular basis anymore. And you may end up being out of the sport. Well, that's kind of where I found myself in academics and my number one goal. And I knew I wanted, you know, at that point when Anita made the Olympics in 96, I was a 16 year old boy. And I was like, I'm doing that too. And what happened was I realized you know, in my mind at 16, only superheroes made the Olympic team. And that's really easy to fall into. These people are superhuman. They're, they're not normal. Uh, they were never normal people. They were always Olympians. And that's, you know, it's impossible for me to do. When one of my friends became an Olympian, I realized these are just regular people mm-hmm. that decided to own the commitment to the work and the challenge of being it. For me, it was like, you know, I want to, uh, I want to be one of those people and I'm going to earn that, but I had to move on to collegiate swimming in order to do that because that's kind of where the next step in the process was coming out of club swimming, at least at that point. I was going to say that when did becoming an Olympian become realistic? It was when you went to Tennessee. Sure. Well, first and foremost, I had to 
take that 1.1 and they told me, well, you're going to have to get a 4.0 if you're going to get into any of the schools you want to go Dang. to. Year. So I committed myself to the, the same goal setting process I would do for, for swimming. I mean, bring your pencil to school. <laughs> you know, started at the beginning and worked my way up that goal ladder. And I got a 4.0 my senior year, which put me in a position to be able to go on to college athletics and academics. And believe it or not, I found myself really liking the process Yeah, because I was engaged and committed to a goal and working hard at it. Yeah. And then I ended up getting a 3.5 in, in for my GPA in college and getting a degree in, in, in awesome. that process. So just learning the commitment to the goal setting process through the sport of swimming and applying it to the rest of my life. It was an amazing lesson. Like, Holy cow, look what I can do. Um, but you know, as your question, when did it, the, the uh, Olympic idea start to be less of an idea, more mm. of a reality? Yeah. Um, you know, it, it was great to get an opportunity to, to train and race my freshman year, which was the year before the 96 Olympics. And, uh, yeah, they'll get second at NCAA's in the hundred breaststroke to Kurt Grote, uh -huh. um, you know, and uh, Stanford. Yeah, yep. Mm -hmm. okay. He was the senior that year, so it was the only year I raced him. Mm -hmm. um, and then uh, make the national team that summer. I made the Pan Pacific Games, and I really at that point didn't even know what that meant. Um, I didn't know the process for making national team. I went to U.S. Nationals in the summer. Um, I think it was like in Pasadena or something like that. And, uh, and I got second in the hundred breast and, uh, and I'm walking down the deck and after the, after the race is over and who ended up being my Olympic team captain, John Olson comes up to me and he goes, what a swim, dude. You, I can't believe it. You made the national team. Are you excited? You're going to go. And I was like, uh, I don't know if I'm going to go, <laughs> um, you know, Grateful Dead's got a tour going on. I think I might go catch them for the rest of the summer. And he stopped <laughs> for a second. He's like, I love the Dead 2 guy. You kind of don't pass up making the national team. You got to go. And I was like, I took that to, to heart, which was good. Because um, yeah. I had the experience of getting to go swim with the national team, Pan Pacific Games in Atlanta at the Olympic pool mm. and that's everything started to really become a reality that this was a possibility for me. I'd made the national team. I achieved what it would take the next year at Olympic trials, you know, first or second place in your given event in order to make the team. I had achieved that the year before. So it started becoming really close to home that this was a possibility for me. Nice. I love this. I love the story, man, that, that it happened kind of naturally and organically, you know, but, it, but it happened. And, and there was certainly a point where you, you figured it out, but I mean, there's a big leap from maybe making the U S national team to then becoming an Olympic medalist, you know, silver medal in the, in the, in the hundred breast, correct. And then, uh, and then gold in the relay. So when did becoming a medalist become a reality? Yeah. So, um, so making the Olympic team was pretty fun too. Um, you know, and, and, it, and it's, it's pretty cutthroat, right. To make the U S Olympic team. Sure. And, uh, what, what do you say, Brett, how, how, what is the percentage of best times at the Olympic trials? Uh, Olympic trials, I'd say probably somewhere between 20 to 25%, 25% of the athletes that compete in the entire Olympic trial games over 1600 athletes, probably at that time, more like 1100 athletes Yeah. go best time. Yeah. Um, I qualified for finals and I was in lane two. <laughs> this was at Indianapolis. And, uh -huh. and you, you know, when you walk in that venue and you see the names on the wall, uh -huh. at that point it was the names on the wall from the 92 team. Mm -hmm. And they had just stenciled on the wall, 1996 Olympic team. And the list was blank. Mm. I remember walking in that venue and just staring at the wall and imagining them, you know, painting my name up on that wall and, and, and being the guy that, that got the opportunity to make that list. Oh, dude, you give me chills, man. Yeah. So <laughs> putting yourself in, in the finals in lane two, I'm seated sixth going into finals, but I got a shot. Most people seated sixth going into finals at Olympic trials are like, well, I made the heat and that's good enough. You Who's know? the competition? Um, current American record holder, Seth Van Eerden. Uh, you got Kurt Grote, uh, Todd Torres, you know, some, some, 
big time names. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm looking around and it's like a who's who of I, who I, I was looking up to in the last three years and yeah. I'm, I'm part of the heat. Mm. And, uh, and I had uh, had the opportunity to race a couple of the guys in, in season in, in, you know, they're older guys. I'm a younger guy. Sometimes that that's in favor of the younger guy. Um, so I had some good races against them and, uh, and I kind of knew that, you know, they knew I was a little bit of a wild card. The fun part about the race wasn't as fun at the moment. It's fun to tell as a story. Now, um, there's a clock malfunction at the finish of the race. I swam my race and I knew I did great. I was pretty sure I finished first or second when it ended. And I looked up at the clock and it wasn't first and it wasn't second. It wasn't third, fourth, fifth, sixth, or seventh. At the bottom, it said, Jeremy Lynn did not swim. Oh, said, one thing, I swam this race. <laughs> it didn't say DQ. So thank God for that. Yeah. But, uh, it, you know, it, and so number one and number two, and I think it, it was, uh, it was Eric Wunderlich and, uh, and Kurt Grote were listed as number one and number two. So mm-hmm. back then the guys were, you know, they get out of the pool and their coaches are nearby and they're all celebrating. And uh, I'm kind of sitting on the side of the pool, like what just happened there? And you hear an announcement say, uh, you know, don't, don't, uh, the board's not official. You know, there's mm. been a clock malfunction. Give us a second board goes blank. So mm. about five minutes go by and, you know, they're getting interviewed by NBC. All those things are happening. I'm like, geez, I'm watching my coaches just go bananas talking to the officials over there. Like what, what's going on? And finally, you know, they said scoreboard's official, it comes back on. And I start at the bottom this time. Like, okay, we're going to work our way. <laughs> one there, one there, one there. And there it was. I had won Olympic trials. I was Damn. first place. And, uh, and, it, and it went, you, you remember that goal ladder we were talking about? Mm, that yeah. was goal of the day. Make mm. the Olympic team. And I had grabbed that top rung of the ladder. It was the highest rung on the ladder. Mm. And I was swinging from it. It's massive. And it's amazing because you asked when did I realize I wanted, I was going to be a medalist? Well, here's what happens when you get to the top rung of a ladder, when goal setting and riding that goal, walking up that ladder on a daily basis is your process. It's like a fireman's ladder. Mm. It extends up. There's more goals. Well, now I want to be an Olympic medalist. Mm-hmm. I want to make finals and I want to get, an, I want to get one of those medals at the Olympics. Um, I had dropped about a, uh, a second to tie the American record, which was at the time, like, uh, I think it was 101.3. So I tied Seth Van Eerden's American record to make the Olympic team. And uh, I wanted to get better. I knew Mm. I was going to have to do better than that too, in order to, uh, you know, medal at the games. Yeah. Um, And, and you go into the, the Olympic games and, and the cool thing was uh, camp was at University of Tennessee for Atlanta. Mm. My first two international trips, I got to get a passport for these trips, I was getting on a bus and traveling two hours to Atlanta, Georgia, <laughs> from Knoxville. Those were my two, first two international swimmer trips. You know, oh, so wasn't, wasn't, you know, a no stamp for that. Yeah. <laughs> and I, you know, later on, I got to go to Australia and Japan mm-hmm. and the travel, and I'm sure we'll get into that is a really a special part of getting this opportunity. Yeah. But, uh, you know, the camp was at, at university of Tennessee. So I was really in a good spot where, uh, you know, I had one race to get ready for, um, you know, hopefully two with the relay at that point was my thought process. And so I'm getting ready for the hundred breast. And I really zeroed in where the rest of my career, I was always thinking about, you know, when I was younger, five to eight races, and then in college three in the relays, you know, so it was busy. This was preparing for prelims finals, one race, and you really zero in on that preparation. Um, And I improved and I improved enough to swim in the second to last heat in prelims in the United States, 16,000 fat fans in the stands Mm. for anybody listening to that. I'm going to say it one more time, 16,000 people cheering for a swim meet Mm. Olympic trials these days. It's a lot like that, but there was nothing like that at the time. You know, 16,000 people was like, you're a rock and roll star in your own country. Was that okay for you? Did you handle that well? I was the kind of guy that liked to put on a show. Yeah. I liked everybody looking at me. Mm-hmm. When I heard it, I was like, a little more, a little yeah. more. <laughs> I, loved, 
um, it just gave me energy and fed. I, I really focused on staying calm and taking all the energy that was being provided to me by my mind and my body and my surroundings and focusing it into the moment. So it was, uh, mm. it was just more energy coming to me. So it was really good. And it was an exciting time. Um, yeah. So I swam the prelims in, uh, and I dropped some, some time. I think I went like, you know, 101.1, which means I broke the American record. And yeah. I put my hands up and the crowd, yeah, and I'm, yeah, I'm strutting. <laughs> I walk off to the warm down pool and the last heat goes up. And, uh, you know, two minutes later, you hear a, a, this crowd go, and I knew there was no Americans in there. Crowd goes even crazier. Uh, and, I, and there isn't the TVs like there is these days everywhere. So you're like, what just happened? Mm -hmm. Like, oh, that dude just broke the world record and went, uh, you know, double O, double O nine. So he had beat me by a half a second. Dang, who was that? Uh, Fred de Bergeva, a guy okay. from Belgium. Belgium. Uh, <laughs> shaved his head, didn't wear goggles. I was like, this guy? Okay. <laughs> you know? And uh, and I didn't know much about him. He didn't know much about me. We're still friends today from this race. Oh, that's cool. Finals, you know, um, so now I'm going into finals. I'm seated second. The world record holders there. So I went from I want to win a medal to I want to win. Yeah. Want to beat this guy? Yeah, sure. And the excitement gets even greater at finals, as everyone knows. You're it's even peaking higher. You know, there's you know however many million people watching on TV. Um, I'm excited. And, uh, and I had a race plan, 19 strokes out, 21 back. And I executed it perfectly every time, except I was a little excited this night. And mm -hmm. when I went by 19 stroke and reached for that wall, I glided, hmm, you know, an extra three feet. Yeah. I glide, I went silver. I just made that one little mistake that was going to, you know, make me miss. All right. Interestingly, when I went through that turn, I was a body and length and a half behind the guy that was winning Fred, mm. but I still thought I had a chance to win. And when I came off the pool out, he's body length and a half ahead of me. Uh, I just executed in the thing about making mistakes, Brett, and I'm sorry, I'm talking so much, but that's what the podcast for, man. We want you to talk. Um, the thing about making mistakes, I feel like, um, this happens you're going to fail. You're going to make mistakes. You're going to screw things up. It's how you manage them in your preparation and how those pro you process them for you. Uh, you know, so if you make a mistake in, and you let it get you down or you, you, you quit trying because, because you screwed it up or whatever, you won't be prepared in the moment for when you make a mistake. Cause nobody's going to ever be exactly perfect. Yeah. You allow yourself yeah to move forward from a mistake and not let it affect you. So when that word silver went through my head, it didn't stay there. It's just what I said in that moment, that mistake, mm, silver. Mm. And then I kept doing what I was supposed to do. 21 strokes, accelerating on the way back. And uh, the last 25, that guy had gone out with everything he had and he was swimming hard. And here I came accelerating when the, Finished touch came. He touched me up by nine one hundredths of a second. Mm, dang. And we were both faster than the existing world record that he had created that morning. So I missed the world record by nine one hundredths of a second. It got that much faster than me right before I broke the existing one. So that was the first time you went under 101? Yeah, it was 007 to get. Uh, dang, that's a big uh, drop. Yeah. And, and coming into the meet, I was 101.6. So. Mm. We had three months in preparation. These days, it's like three weeks, yeah. three months in preparation. So I had a lot of good time to get better, to get stronger, to get smarter, to get more focused on that moment. Um, so, so I used it, uh, you know, in a good way to, to apply it to that moment. That's so, a baller, man. That's a baller. That's a guy that performs when he needs to. Yeah, dropping a second in the Olympics as a 20-year-old, that's cool. I, I, I was happy with that. And, uh, yeah. um, you know, people say, oh, man, bummer. You got a silver medal. That must be a bummer. I'm like, I want you to analyze what you just said. <laughs> I have a silver medal in the Olympics. Not a bummer. Yeah. I didn't yeah. sleep for like 24 hours. I'm just looking at this thing, you know. It's mm -hmm. an amazing, amazing experience. Um, and uh, And – Luckily, I had five days till the relay because I needed every one of those days to recover. <laughs> so I put everything I had into that moment. And uh, in, in the relay, so that was the first event in the Olympics. The relay was the last event in the Olympics for men swimming. 
Oh, wow. You got to do the first and the last. And, and <laughs> I can't imagine doing it. You know, I, I now prepare kids to do big lists like, you know, what Caleb's doing or what Michael did. We use yeah. that as a model, like 18 swims in a, in a five day period. Let's be ready. You know, I was like four swims in a five day period. So right about where <laughs> I was. And and that's it. and I only had to do three because I made the the relay at night, which was a really exciting uh, relay. Um, that year, the uh, the Russians were really good. Den- Dennis Pankratov was mm. the flyer. Alex Popov was the freestyler. That's they right. were good, and they were picked to win that medley relay. Um, we had a pretty good relay though too. Uh, Jeff Rouse backstroke um, almost broke the world record on the way out, and uh, and the thing about going off of a lead off, I'm going second breaststroke, of course, off of a lead off and the announcer, there's 16,000 people over here yelling. And then there's uh, an announcer going, he's going to break the world record. And I'm on this block that just keeps getting smaller and smaller as he gets close. <laughs> like, okay, I just, the only thing I can't got to do is not fall in. <laughs> like, <laughs> it was an exciting moment. And, uh, and I actually, uh, I went double O O on that relay. Dang, dang. The first guy on almost the first guy under a minute. Now that's fair, fairly commonplace, but uh, I didn't have dolphin kicks or, you know, swimsuits and stuff like that. We had a, yeah. Know. Double O back then is, is flying down the pool. That's awesome. I love so, it. Uh, yeah. And, and once we finished the breaststroke leg and Mark Henderson had the opportunity to dive in for the fly and, uh, and Gary Hall Jr. brought home when Gary dove in, it was like, we we're all high-fiving like this. <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna get a gold medal but not only did we get a gold medal we broke the world record by two and a half seconds which wow. is that one right behind me nice um, my first world record so uh pretty pretty exciting moment to to number one to get to share it with uh with those three guys uh do it for for your country on a relay it's it's pretty cool um, and, and i know you've been on some pretty special relays yourself so you get the idea of what that's like. Nothing like that, man. Nothing like that. But uh, I'll tell you this. I'm, I'm doing a clinic with Gary Hall Jr. this weekend. So I'm pretty yeah, – I, ex- I will for sure. I'm always excited to catch up with him. Good good dude, just like he, you. So. One of the most unique perspectives on life, teaching, uh, you know, the sport of swimming. Uh, I learn something from him every time I get to spend time with him. So it'll yeah. be a really fun experience, I'm sure. Yeah, he's a good man. Now, listen, how do you, the Jeremy Lin that I knew was a collegiate stud, but before I knew you, this was 97, before that, you're an Olympic gold medalist. How do you not lose the plot then? How do you not just switch off and say, all right, I'm, I'm a gold medalist, I'm done, or, you know, just, just rest and, and, and feel like you've accomplished everything you need to accomplish? Yeah. Like I said, the, the guy that I knew was a stud in college. Yeah. Interestingly, we didn't also didn't have the benefit of like really good nutrition education and things like that. So longevity wasn't a thing for, for athletes sure. our age as much as it is now because they're doing a lot more things that are there, uh, you know, to keep them in the sport, whether it's taking care of their body better, yeah. uh, you know, from, from rehab standpoint or training standpoint, um, for taking care of their body better uh, from a, a nutrition standpoint. Those things weren't necessarily in place for us like they are now. So longevity yep. wasn't as big of a thing. But I'll tell you the, the uh, confidence level that I gained moving forward into, into 1997 when, uh, when I swam fairly well in the yards pool. Uh, previous to me going 51.8 and 100 breaststroke, um, the only guy that had ever been 52 was from 1984, a gentleman named Steve Lundquist. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, the Lunk uh, broke the American record in, in 84. He wasn't allowed to put his head under the surface, so a lot more powerful type swimmer. Uh, he went, he was 52, like seven. Um, and I went 51.86 in, in, um, what was my junior year of college um, and he got to be the first guy to go 51 seconds. And, and I held that American record for 10 years. So that's pretty cool too. Yeah, um, you did, man. Uh, you know, like I said, I, I remember being, 
part of the Auburn team, which was really strong at the time. But if we had one fear, if we had one, uh, you know, if we knew anything, we knew that Jeremy Lin was going to win and he was going to push his team to, to be as good as they could possibly be. And they were going to challenge us. And so like you were, you were kind of the epicenter of the Tennessee team of like, how do we, how do we figure this guy out? Yeah. We had other guys start winning races. My roommate won the yeah. backstroke, you know, it's just, it was an attitude and, yeah. and fortitude and, you know, really the, honestly, the commitment to winning uh, was such a big deal, you know, and, and it's not just an individual win anymore. We, we won uh, a conference title at our own pool in 96, believe it or not, it was the only year I wasn't, uh, rested for the conference meet because of Olympic trials coming mm. up. Um, but, uh, yeah, it, it was, you know, and you know that about how a, a team can raise the level. And I think it's so important for anybody that, that, that coaches a program now uh, on the club level or the collegiate level to understand how to eliminate the variables that are going to take you out of that high level of, competition you know whether it's a, a negative attitude uh somebody that's not all in on the commitment for work you know whatever it is understanding what what could be the the, the thing that brings you down a notch or, or keeps you from allowing everybody to elevate to where that one person can take you or that group of people can take you yeah is important to understand. So creating an atmosphere for success is such a big deal. I know uh, the word culture is thrown around. I think culture is some is a product of, you know, uh, a, a culture of excellence is a product of having a, a, an atmosphere that allows people to make choices to, to be excellent. Yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, uh, like, like like you're saying, you, I mean, your team was very competitive, and, and we were very competitive. What were your thoughts on the Auburn team at the time? You know, when when we were coming and starting to be pretty successful. I mean, how did you approach that? Um, we certainly were not. We didn't approach it with with fear. Uh, we it, it would be like you know, you you guys were the team with a target on your back because you were winning national titles. So we were lucky enough to go, that's who we're chasing. Mm -hmm. It was harder for you because you're like, that's who's chasing us. Mm -hmm. You know, we have to do what it takes to stay on top. We were kind of chasing after you. It's just like being the world current world record holder in a given event. You're looking yeah. into a black hole. There's no one you're chasing anymore. You are now the best. Yeah. And now you have to do what it takes to continue to be the best. And we knew that you guys might have been in a disadvantage based on that now, obviously you continued to win so it was good obviously you found out figured out what it took to continue to be in that position but uh you know i think somebody that's chasing has it has a little bit of an advantage when it comes to that so being an underdog never concerned me or us it actually is a position where i feel like is the position of power yeah. Now, the person that is is already the best or the team that is already the best has to find a way to continue to be that best you know so they continue to do the things the way they've done them but they also have to continue to get better you know so we knew that you know the team we were looking at from last year was going to be better and that's the kind of the way we had to get better than what they were last year and get better than that because that's where you were going to be yeah, it seemed to me like you didn't take a backward step to anybody. Like nobody, no, you didn't fear anybody. In, in fact, it was almost like this is my lane. This is my event. This is you gotta, you gotta. I mean, it wasn't even like somebody was close to you. You know, honestly, it was like you were just so dominant that, and and it was like you carried this persona, like the way you walked around the deck. I mean you were different. Yeah. I mean, you, you must admit that like you were, you were different, you were cut different. And, and so as a coach now, how would you coach Jeremy Lynn back then? Like if you saw this guy come on the deck, how do you coach that guy? Yeah. Well, and, and interestingly is one of the things we try and, and help each one of the individuals that's part of our program now is to, to gain confidence. And it was, a, a, I was confident in what I was doing 
from moment to moment. And that's why I came off that way. I owned every moment and I wanted people looking at me. Mm-hmm. I wanted people going, man, that guy's cut a little different. That guy, you know, my pre-race routine, people ask me about that all the time. I, you have this strange pre-race routine. My vertical leap was 40 inches mm-hmm. unless I brought my knees up beside my head and my feet, you know, up, up by my shoulders. Then it was more like 55 inches, which means I was jumping over somebody's head that was six feet tall Damn. to do that behind the blocks and imagine, you know, and, and I've talked to friends like Jared Mars, you know, once you jump over Jared's head, He's done. He, he, he can't race. He can't win the race. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. I, I just jump over my head. <laughs> so that's what it was. It was, it was an intimidation thing, but it was also like, look at me as well. Well, certainly. And certainly, you know, uh, I had a, a kindness and respect for everybody. Absolutely. Yeah. Us as well. I want to be clear on that. It wasn't a, for sure. A, uh, I'm better than everybody. It was just a confidence in myself. And we try and help kids understand that, you know, if they've worked hard and they've given a hundred percent effort that being confident is okay. Mm-hmm. And then allow your personality to be part of that confidence. Some folks aren't as, you know, you know, like me, like I'm okay. I know I'm six, five and everybody sees me and I'm going to give it a little strut when I'm walking down the pool. I'm okay with that too. Sure. Um, you know, some folks, we're a little quieter in that, that concept, but we really promote finding your personality in your process, claiming mm-hmm. ownership to it. You know, so what you do behind the blocks, you know, um, how you carry yourself through your warm up. Uh, you know, when you, when you walk on the deck at an international meet, you know, there's someone over there that's jumping rope. There's someone over there that's doing yoga. There's so, yeah, everybody yeah. kind of owning their process. So I think it's important to, to help teach young swimmers that now, and we'll do, you know, I remember I would, when I was a younger coach, I would, you know, the kids are all out on deck and I'm not all of a sudden I come walking out of the locker room and I show them what it looked like to see me walk out on the deck, mm-hmm. you know, and they're all just watching. And then we talk about what that, what was the effect that I gave them? You know, what did they feel from that? And all, and I told tell them that was just me being me me owning the moment and that's how i did it i think it's important to to help everybody understand how they're going to own their own moment yeah i mean um i mean you did that as as well as anybody i'd ever seen you know in in terms of just um owning your confidence and and then letting that confidence display itself in your racing you know and and it's, it's kind of like maximizing your talent. You know, you, you have this talent and allowing it to be free and allowing it to express itself and, and doing what you can. Now, in terms of like, when, when did it come to an end for you? When did you realize it was the end of your swimming career? So I trained from, uh, from 96, I continued to swim on the national team and I had some great travel experiences. I got to go all over the world, uh, some on the national team, some off of the national team. Uh, I was one of the first athletes that was a sponsored swimmer for, for a swimwear company. Uh, I, I got to do all the great things that a professional swimmer got to gets to do for the next four years. Um, you know, I was done with the academics. I was now training at my college and I'm a post-grad. There wasn't a lot of that going yep. on. Um, so I was, I kind of found myself in a position where, you know, not many swimmers of 24 years old or, or were continuing on with the sport at the time. Yeah. I continued through to trials in 2000. Um, I felt more mentally and physically prepared than I ever was. I ended up getting ninth in the morning at Olympic trials. And I was like, I guess that's it for me. Oh, wow. uh, you know, I knew I'd not left my best race in the pool. It just wasn't a great, you know, like I said, I walked into finals it, it, the, the four years earlier and I was sixth, uh, you know, so making the finals was all that really mattered. You make the finals, then you go win the race. Yeah. Um, and I just happened to not make the finals. So that I kind of had that, be a marker for okay you know uh you know what do i do another four years of this and try again or, or am i ready to kind of move forward with it and i was very i was proud of what i did i knew swimming didn't define me as a person um you know and and i was ready to kind of move forward with what was going to come next in my life little did i know at the time when i when i handed my coach my goggles and i said that was good uh uh you know i'm, I'm super okay with walking away right now 
um, little did I know that I'd be back on the deck within a year <laughs> and, and on the deck for the next, you know, <laughs> and 21 years as a coach, you know, was that a natural progression or did somebody pull you into that? Yeah. So I was actually working in music management. Uh, um, so you've heard of Bonnaroo, right? Yep. I was working uh, for the company uh, of, of a guy that, that he, he about three months after I left, he started Bonnaroo. I was like, Hey, wow. little, little heads up. I wouldn't have left to go swim coach. If you, I knew you were going to start Bonnaroo. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, uh, you know, just a side, it wasn't a side to, uh, I ended up moving to the Florida Keys. I got word that they were building some pools down there. What, what is now the uh, Founders Park in Isla Mirada and then Jacobs Aquatic Center in Key Largo. And they're pretty well-known training facilities for college teams, uh, you know, and, and just really beautiful place. Um, I was like, yeah, I'll move to the Florida Keys and help you start some swim teams down there. Um, so that's what I did. And, uh, and for, for three and a half, four years, I was there and helped start the programs there with my Olympic team captain, John Olson, who's still down there. Mm. Um, and then Gary and his dad came down uh, with the race club. So all those things kind of started to happen. But uh, I was lucky enough to be the first guy on the ground there. Uh, I, I had actually talked John Olson into coming down there. Oh, so, cool. Yeah. Uh, and, and it kind of gave me the bug for teaching because we were teaching from the very beginning of the sport. So we were teaching age groupers how to be better, like how to use a kickboard. So you had to start at the beginning. And I really like that concept for somebody that's been at an elite level. Delete stuff comes fairly easily. Yeah. I wanted to know how to teach from the beginning to the end. And uh, so I started at the beginning and, uh, and you know, uh, luckily with my degree was psychology, um, having the ability to communicate well, uh, with, with somebody is a really big deal, uh, as far as teaching. Um, so it was important for me to understand how to learn to communicate with, you know, if I'm teaching a, an 80 year old woman, how to swim, it's different to communicate with her than it is a four-year-old kid or a five-year-old kid, Yeah, uh, you know, so, uh, there's, the different levels of communication really came in application to teaching base level skills all the way through, you know, uh, me too, man. Yeah. My, my, my degree was in psychology. So I felt like it helped me a lot in, in yeah. terms of that as well. So especially dealing with young adults, which is what I do now. And, and what you did so well as a swim coach, uh, you know, working with young adults, you've got to understand kind of the, how, how to manage psyche a little bit, mm -hmm. how to, uh, communicate the same message to two different people by saying two different things. You're going to get the final results, the same thing. But if you understand that person, you know, you can't say the same thing you said to, to Billy over here that, that you're going to say to Marge over here. Yeah. Um, what about the draw to college? I mean, obviously someone in your experience as an athlete and then um, in, in coaching the experience you've got, I'm sure your phone has been ringing off the hook the last, 10 years. I'm, there's no doubt. Like, so have you had a lot of interest of people trying to pull you into the college ranks? I passed up quite a few uh, awesome opportunities, whether sure. it was the timing of life, um, mm. you know, with, with a wife and a kid, those things come into play. Mm -hmm. But uh, uh, sometimes it was, uh, you know, uh, I, I had a commitment to, to seeing what I could do with this club team and, and, and create the excellence that, that we're, we've been enjoying for the past few years from nothing. And I think that that is something that's so special and something that you can't really, I guess you could go to a lower level college and try and turn it into juggernaut, something that's really special. Yeah. But the great thing about doing it on the club level is you get to develop them from learn to swim all the way through the elite level. And you get to see that process happen uh, and, and actually help people develop as the human beings that they are. It means so much to me. I feel like if we go back to my initial goal of giving back as much as I possibly can, I'm allowed to affect 280 kids a year as opposed to 30 to 40, you know, college kids every four years. What, what about your relationship between um, being a club coach and, and a college coach? You know, you, you develop these kids and then you hand them off to the college coach and then all of a sudden they blow up and the college coach gets all the credit. I mean, it's got to be tough though, right? 
Um, you know, one of the great things is, you know, ever since, you know, same idea, the confidence that I had walking on a pool deck is the same kind of confidence I've always had talking to any coach. Yeah. Um, so I never had a problem calling up any coach or reaching out to a coach. Um, as, as the process, you know, the college process, we, we graduate uh, 20 high school seniors this year, just for my arm in the program, all mm. going to higher education. I think 16 of which will be swimming or 17 of which will be swimming. Um, so, you know, making the proper connection for each one of those individuals is based on education, community and swimming experiences is, is a really big deal. Um, cause, cause a high school swimmer just wants to get the t-shirt and go to the big school and yeah. not that's not the experience that's going to work for them. So finding that connection and, and we find that, that the communication with the college coaches in order to make sure, uh, you know, they know what they're getting, uh, that we understand their expectations and that it's going to be a proper fit for them is such a big deal. Um, and, and certainly there's college coaches like, like Sergio, uh, mm -hmm. That, uh, you know, he and I are just really close and we always have been. Um, he likes the way I develop my athletes and, and we, we have a great relationship based on that. And it's an ongoing conversation for their success. Yeah. You know? so yeah. Not every one of my best athletes is going to go swim for Sergio, but they, they're going to have that opportunity to talk with them and see if it's going to work out. For them. Yeah, I like that. A great relationship between a club coach and a college coach can only help me be better. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Good, good stuff. Now, um, what about the state of U.S. breaststroke? You know, uh, as as a silver medalist, I mean, it's it's like you said, it's you stare at that medal forever. It's brilliant. But American backstroke has been completely dominant the last twenty years. Why is it that American breaststroke hasn't been as dominant? Maybe because they're all swimming backstroke. I don't know. <laughs> um, you know, I, not I, American breaststrokers that are out there right now. I think they're fantastic. And I think they'll have the ability to do it. Um, Adam is a pretty tough guy to chase. If, and if you look at the frame that he has, what is he about 230 pounds? He's um, a big dude. I know that. <laughs> strong guy and he's swimming a certain way. Yeah. And uh, we don't necessarily have personnel that's swimming that way or uh, framed like that. And it just seems to be at least on the speed side, not necessarily on the 200 side, faster to do it that way. What um, do you think of how he's swimming? I mean, the way that you used to swim and then the way he's swimming, uh, I mean, the way he's swimming is completely different to, to most people, but he's doing things really well, obviously, to be, to be yeah. swimming that fast. And, and really pushing boundaries too, right? It really allowed me to expand my uh, my uh, thought process as to what will work for given individuals. Sure. Because um, breaststroke is one of those strokes uh, that, that you kind of got to take the guy that's doing it and help them do what they're doing well. Mm -hmm. uh, you don't necessarily want to go, you have to do it my way. Because uh, if I taught everybody to do it my way, one of 10 would do it well. Right. I want to what you're doing better um and and when i see somebody that has things that, that they do like him for instance uh you know the the kick being you know the kick was the driving force in my stroke and it was very very big and strong and powerful and long and adams is very different than that it's a small range of motion it's it has it's very narrow and far and and ex accelerated right has power and it's fat it's it's very strong it's just it's a much quicker tempo and pop to it it's a different way to to imagine that kick you know i was reaching up as high as i possibly getting and trying to get as much water as i could and really letting that drive my lunge and i think that it just kind of helps him stay on that balance of uh his line and it does push water, but it's interesting to watch how that works. And now we see athletes, Hey, you know what, this might work for you, you know? And so watching videos of that, or, or, you know, allowing them to say, Hey, I don't have to increase the range of their kick as much as I thought I did, you know, and allowing them to use it like that. It's been a good learning experience for me. So I think as we watch athletes, it's a great learning experience. And I love, uh, you know, 
when you when you look at the breaststrokes right now and you have an up and coming age grouper, it's like there's a window there. You know, it's like the uh, you know 200 fly for Americans right now. There's a window there. You know, let's let's see if we can walk through that window or at least put ourselves in the, in the conversation for being the one to walk through that window. Are you looking at what Adam's doing and and some other people now that uh, are copying what he's doing? Can you apply that to age group swimming? Yeah, you know, and I think, uh, you know, when you get to work with some of the more developed physically kids, yes. Um, so when you have an 18-year-old young man that's that's starting to be a lot more de- developed physically, you can start doing some of those things applicably to, to, to do it that way. It would not be, uh, you know, a base level teaching that we would use for our age groupers. So the base level would still be count strokes get length hold as much water as you can we're gonna uh always teach uh the less strokes the faster you're gonna be yeah um, right. so we're going for low counts and uh and, and that's how we're going to develop you if we find later on that rate is something that you can manage and hold we'll use it and it's obviously we're gonna we're gonna give you the opportunity to try all those things as you as you evolve but we're gonna put you base level long and counts you know so we have like for each age group this is the count that we're looking for 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 this group of of, you know age as a base level distance per stroke somebody might be one over or one below but you're trying to you know for our coaches to know that's the number they're trying to uh, develop their kids to Mm. now do you do speed and power training within your workouts even for those kids for the young guys yeah, I mean, let's say you know somewhere between thirteen to sixteen. Are you are you still are you doing some speed and power at all or not? Well, the center point of our our training focus is going to continue with that age group to be aerobic because they are aerobic sponges more than they are at any other time in their life from the from the time they're you know nine years old through the time that they're seventeen years old. They can they can. Uh, you know, absorb aerobicism and take it forward into the rest of their career. So we want to make the basis for what we do aerobic. So that that doesn't mean we're not going to teach them uh, power drills, not necessarily using power equipment, but drills that'll help them create power drills that'll help them create speed, hand speed, foot speed. So maybe you're doing uh, vertical egg beater to create foot speed, or you're doing uh, you know, head up breaststroke with a freestyle kick to create hand speed, mm-hmm. things like that is, is a great way to develop speed and power without use necessarily using tools as we move forward, you know, and, and we'll allow kids to, to use fins, hand paddles, you know, things like that as they develop, uh, physically and mentally, and they're not going to do things that, that are going to uh, injure them. And then as, as they continue to evolve, we don't use uh, any power towers, power racks or anything like that. We will use cords and shoots and, and, and things like that, but uh, uh, not to the detriment of our aerobic uh, development. Right. Now, um, in, ter- in terms of aerobic development, I'm going to ask you that. No, I don't want to ask you about some drills, but in terms of aerobic development, what does that mean for breaststroke? How do you, how do you develop aerobically for breaststroke? Sure. Um, have you ever done a 300 breaststroke where you don't have pullouts, you have to do flip turns, and you take three strokes underwater, three strokes above water? Hmm. If you're doing that, cycling that per length, that means you get three strokes per length and say you do three, four hundreds that way. Um, and that's for somebody that's pretty well developed in their, their knees and their hips and things like that. And their connective tissues so that they can do that much breaststroke. So you do three, four hundreds that way, descend do as fast as you can possibly go on the last one. That's some pretty good aerobic development in a breaststroke set. Um, and, and so that's just one way, or say you're in a long course pool and you do four, two hundreds of, you're really working on developing the pull out and the breakout. So you do one pull out, one stroke, one pull out, one stroke, and you just continue that cycle for a 200. Get a nice long one and descend from there on time. So you're getting some great aerobic development, not necessarily just hitting stroke after stroke. All right. Find importance in finding that rhythm and that tempo with the strokes. But, you know, we, we look to develop things aerobically by having drills that help carry skills forward too. Right. 
Uh, what about this? Uh, you know, a lot of breaststrokers, you know, sometimes they felt like their timing was out. What, what are the, some of the best drills you like to kind of re-engage the timing of the breaststroke? Sure. It, it, the first thing that we find with timing uh, is probably, you know, one of two things. Uh, the way people think about the stroke, they think they pull first and kick second. Is that how, how you think about, about it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, flip your brain what's the last thing you do after you do a pull out before you break out you kick, kick. yep and then swim and lead with your kick kick swim kick swim all of a sudden if you're doing that well the timing is a lot easier to change you can then work on getting your hands to that corner to bring your head through mm. kick finish sweep to the corners head break surface when you're at the corners and all of a sudden you're starting to hit timing better and your kick starting to work for you and then uh the other thing that we find is really important to help with timing or help with you see so many breaststrokers brett and you'll see them at your camps i'm sure all the time they just seem like they get stuck when they breathe right mm-hmm. yep and what we found or what I've found over the years, and, and you know, somebody asked me years ago, what was different about the way you swam brush and everybody else? And I said, I breathe better. I mean, what does that mean? What it means is think about, uh, I'm going to ask you the question again, when you're inhaling and exhaling, which one do you like to focus on inhale or exhale? Inhale. Yeah, you're wrong though. You should focus on the <laughs> exhale. And that's what I would tell a kid, Try, flip it focus on the exhale, focus on a long, smooth exhale. Generally what happens if they get stuck on an inhale and they're missing their timing or they're not being fluid through their stroke, they're purging their air right before they swim. So you'll see bubbles come up beside their face Mm -hmm. and then they'll go Mm -hmm. instead of having a long, smooth exhale and they can grab that inhale. Mm -hmm. So timing that exhale where bubbles are coming out of your nose and mouth. My favorite guy to watch doing it and seeing him do it live. And I, I hope you've gotten to see Chase Kalish do his breaststroke live. Mm-hmm. Many oh. times, four years, actually. He, he, uh, he punished me for four years at Auburn. <laughs> yeah. You know, so smooth and carries, you see bubbles rolling down his back. Yeah. Going, you know, through that glide because his timing of his breathing is so great. That's why it works for him. Yeah. Um, he's a great example yeah if you've seen him and, and he's not on your team he punished you yeah he did <laughs> he did now what's your thoughts on the dolphin kick now i mean you guys didn't really have dolphin kicking back then and now they've brought it in and it's kind of been exploited a little bit what's your thoughts on it sure so if you're going to go 49 and 100 breast you better have about 11 dolphin kicks that's all um you know it it it, it is uh it's a big deal for carrying speed keeping balance um i think that that dolphin kick yeah, i love it, it if, if you're gonna where do you put it in the pullout we teach both um because we want them to be armed with the tools to make the choice uh it's about hitting the breakout and carrying speed and hitting the breakout for us right uh, you want to carry speed get your body position through the breakout um or you know let's try it the other way so if I were an athlete and I was doing it, I wasn't a great dolphin kicker, but I could sure open up a pull out, use my whole body and snap through that dolphin kick. Some of them are much better dolphin kickers. So we ask them to try that dolphin kick first and then do their pull out. You know, yeah. so we, let, we teach them both and we ask them to use them both with a, a decision. Like I'm going to do this set this way. I'm going to do this set this way. And then, you know, we'll make that choice later based on what the watch is telling us what's going to work better for them. I like it. Nice, man. Uh, I just want to leave you with this. I've kept you a while. Um, in terms of predictions, who wins the 100 and 200 breast at U.S. Olympic trials for the men? I want Andrew Wilson to win. Yeah, Texas. Is he still in Texas? Uh, and he started at a much smaller school and, and he was, uh, and he, his, his family is associated with our club uh, based on, on his sister swam for us. And, and, uh, you know, so, so Tim Kelly has been a, a big part of his success. And, and uh, you know, so we have a, an affinity for him. I'd love to see him win that hundred breaststroke. I think there's uh, a group of guys, interestingly, what do you think will make the team? in the higher breast time-wise i mean it's got to be 58 something doesn't it it's, it's, it's got to be trials 
Yeah. Yeah. It's got to, it's got to be these days. I mean, 59, 59 low, you would think is, is putting yourself in a conversation, but you don't want to be in a conversation. You want to win the damn thing. You got to be 58 something. I'd be preparing for sure to go 58 something. I, I think you break 59, three, you'll probably make first or second. Yeah. 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 I mean, 59, 59 low is going to put you in a conversation, but that's not somewhere you want to be in the U S you want to be on that team. So you want to guarantee you better start swimming some 58s. Yeah. And, and any of the guys, other guys that are listening, I want you to win too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's no, I mean, look, it's, it's wide open. It's basically yeah. what you're saying. It's wide open. It could, it could be anyone. I think there's it, it, any one of eight guys could be, you know, yeah. could be in that conversation. And, and it could be someone from lane two, man. Yeah. If you're in lane two, it could be you. Could be you. Well, listen, man. I appreciate it. This has been awesome. Good catching up. Good catching up with your your story and and uh, your, your your swimming career and your coaching career. Um, you're a good man. I, I hated competing against you. You're always gonna. It was it was pretty much a guaranteed win on your side if if we were racing you. So, um, but but I loved every every second of it, man. Well, to see the story that uh, of when I almost lost a toe at uh, Auburn University. Uh, you remember the lane lines didn't used to have a. Uh, pool buoys on them but the lane line would go into the gutter just the <laughs> lane line yeah buoys on them now because it, at the dual meet i i kicked one of those lines and almost severed one of my toes off right before <laughs> the 200 breasts they put a shot of cortisone in between my two toes and i swam the 200 breasts and i got beat and everybody's like we got him and i was like I, <laughs> <laughs> I don't have toe you Muppets on those lines now because of me. So you can- <laughs> <laughs> I love it, man. Well, listen, Jeremy, I appreciate your time, man. Thanks for thanks for taking the time with this. Absolutely, man. Great talking to you. Great catching up, and I'm sure we'll do it again soon. We will. Take care, man. Bye. Thanks.